guys. Welcome to another episode of Live with the Cork in the Road. I'm Kelly. I'm your wine explorer here in Atlanta, Georgia, and I am chatting with people who are shaping the Southeast wine industry. All right, we are rounding out season two of the podcast today. This is our final 15th episode in the season. But we'll be back with season three, and I'm already lining up some guests, and I can't wait to bring you more stories from more people around the country and even in other countries. And I think that the wine world is really what's holding me together personally. I don't know about you, but man, when I can connect with people and feel like the world is still talking to each other and still drinking wine together and sharing stories, it really makes me feel like we're going to be stronger when we get through all of this. So hang in there and thank you so much for tuning in. I just got a message this past week from somebody on Instagram and they said, where have I been? Like, how did I not know you were doing this podcast and shining a light on Atlanta's wine professionals? And that means the world to me. I am Please let me know if you enjoy what you're hearing because I think I was smiling all day after that little comment. So it means a lot to have all of you tune in and spread the word to your friends and family that also might want to listen to people talk about wine. It's what we enjoy doing and I am just thrilled to continue doing this. So today we have a really cool episode. I'm so excited for you all to meet sommelier June Lim. He's currently working as a sommelier at the Cherokee Town and Country Club. And he'll tell you all about that atmosphere. It's a pretty unique place, but he is no stranger to the Atlanta wine scene. He's an advanced sommelier, and he also, in 2011, he won Taste of Atlanta's Best Sommelier Competition. But you know what? He is one of the most humble people I have ever talked to, honestly, about wine of his caliber. He just wants people to enjoy it. And oddly enough, he told me a little bit about his background getting started in the coffee industry and working for Starbucks, and then now being such a mogul in in the wine scene. And I, I love when people transfer those types of skills. And we got to talk about how we pair wine and how it might relate to some tastes and flavors in coffee. And it was just really cool to talk to him. I appreciate that he took the time to be on the show. So I think you're really going to enjoy getting to know him. He's got an incredible wealth of knowledge in wine, and he's just a really down-to-earth great person. So thank you for tuning in. Stay tuned for the bonus episode next week with a special guest. I don't know if you guys are still trying to guess who it is. You probably won't, but coming out next week, we have our special guest episode. And then we roll into season three. So thank you for being a fan of the show, and I can't wait to do this more often for all of you tuning in. Cheers. All right. Well, I am here with June Lim. He is the sommelier at the Cherokee Town and Country Club. How is it going? It's going well. Thank you. Uh, We're all safe and well and uh, just grateful to have a job and trying to stay as productive as possible. No kidding. I mean, I can't talk about wine without talking about wine in the context of the current world. So what has life been like for you the past couple months? Uh, full of new abnormals, you know, as I like to put it. Um, you know, um, we were closed for about three months, like a lot of people. I think we were really one of the first dining outlets to open here in Atlanta. Um, but, uh, you know, all about putting safety measures in place, right? Uh, we're trying uh, everything we can to keep everyone safe, taking every precaution possible. Um, everything uh, that we can do to help on our end uh, to uh, stop the spread of COVID. 
uh, and that means constantly sanitizing and wiping down surfaces, physically distancing tables, uh, and enforcing the uh, distancing of you know human beings uh, as they walk throughout the club. So yeah, it's been it's been a ride. While maintaining this high standard of hospitality and wine service at the same time, like that. Oh yeah, that too. <laughs> <laughs> like I mean, like oh my gosh, isn't that wild? That like that's everybody is doing public health and safety all of a sudden when really your focus is providing an incredible experience to people, but now you're blending it so people feel safe. And that is so admirable. I do remember that you guys were one of the first to open, but I also saw some incredible protocols in place. So congrats. And that's huge news. But what is your current role? Can you tell me a little bit about what you do at the, at the club? Yeah, so I have the company title um, of um, Club Sommelier, and simply what that means is I'm just in charge more departments. Um, so we have two dining outlets uh, at the Cherokee Town Club, which is in Buckhead. Uh, we have another property, our golf course up in Sandy Springs. I don't know, you know if a lot of people know that or not, but uh, we are the Cherokee Town and Country Club. Uh, people think we're just the Cherokee Country Club. The uh, hyphenated names come from our two different uh, properties, um, one of which is here in Buckhead. And for those of you uh, not familiar with the Atlanta area, uh, it's within the city limits. Uh, that's where I'm based most of the time. Uh, but we also oversee uh, dining rooms up in our Sandy Springs property, which is just north of the perimeter of the city. So yeah, uh, on top of you know dining outlets, we have multiple concepts within. Uh, we have a fine dining room. Uh, we have a casual bar. Uh, we have a casual uh, dining area uh, right beside that. Uh, and we also have um, wine outlets or beverage outlets, if you will, um, at the uh, swimming pool as well as the tennis club. Wow. My kind of baseline knowledge of your location is that my husband is a humongous golf fan. So he knows the golfing there and he's like, he's dreamed of golfing there, but you do so much more than that. And that is really, really neat. So you, you work in all of those dining outlets. You're on all types of locations and service styles. Uh, that's correct. I mean, you know, I, I'm, my title is a sommelier and that's my primary AOR, um, but you know, I'm also a service manager uh, and really I see myself as a service guy first and foremost. So I try to make sure, you know, as far as uh, wine wise, uh, that everything is un under control in all, all those outlets. Pretty cool. That's probably really interesting to get in. Have you always been in wine or what were you doing before you had this current role? Yeah, so it's hard to believe. Uh, I got into wine, uh, you know, 20 years ago already <laughs> when, I was, when I was in college. Uh, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm turning 40 this year. It's just, uh, it, it's crazy to me. But um, yeah, I got into uh, wine when I was um, in my last year of college. I was studying accounting and I, I just absolutely hated it. Uh, I'm like, I cannot foresee myself doing this for the next 45 years or to the day when I retire. And so um, I picked up a book on wine. You know, back then there was just not a lot of resources out there, you know, for people starting out in the wine industry. Uh, there weren't a whole lot of books. Uh, certainly the guilt psalm did not exist back then. Uh, and so, you know, I just kind of attended wine tastings just casually on the weekends with buddies just kind of hang out. And I saw, you know, people in their suits swirling wine. And I'm like, wow, you know, how do I get to do that? I wanted to sell wine. I wanted to, you know, work in it in some form, shape, or another. So I uh, just picked up a book. Uh, one book led to another, and uh, it just became a hobby that got out of hand. You know, I worked a lot of odd jobs in between. You know, back then I wasn't determined on working with wine. I didn't know how to really get my foot in the industry. But uh, I worked a lot of, uh, you know, odd jobs on the side, low-level administrative positions. You know, I, I worked at Starbucks for a number of years uh, and actually moved up within the company. So I, I always thought my career would be, you know, um, 
managing a coffee shop no way. <laughs> like Starbucks. Yeah. Um, but then um, I, I just wasn't making uh, a lot of money uh, back then. And um, I got into the uh, restaurant industry as a uh, bar back, you know, a buster, started mopping floors in the industry. And I found that I can actually make almost twice as much doing that than I could at lower level administrative positions. So I kind of got stuck in it, but it also uh, gave me opportunities to learn more about wine. And I decided to take that uh, inroad uh, into uh, establishing my career. So humble, humble beginnings. So you didn't grow up around wine. Was that something in your family that you saw or was it really that first book in college? Yeah, so um, I didn't grow up around wine. Uh, my dad uh, was a, a scotch collector, so I've been around alcohol, uh, right? You know, my, my mother drinks beer. Uh, she likes sake. Uh, but my dad, you know, being the uh, typical Asian gentleman that he is, he collected scotch, uh, you know, so things like Johnny Walker, that was his favorite scotch. And I like Johnny Walker, too, and I like blended scotches because they're just a little more balanced and I have a palate for it. Uh, it's because my dad. <laughs> um, so, um, so, so yeah, I, I've always been into appreciating, you know, alcoholic beverages, but uh, wine was a, a first for me uh, when I got into it in college. When did you start formally studying wine then? Like in terms of picking kind of that route, was it after college that you had more education opportunities or when did that kind of grow? Yeah, so uh, education, uh, you know, back then, and I don't mean to sound like I'm 65 years old, you know, I keep saying back then, but, you know, in the context of, you know, the timeline of where the wine industry is. That right? time is all messed up at this point in my life, so no worries. <laughs> 20 years ago, um, it, it just wasn't a big thing. You know, no one, hardly anyone knew what a sommelier was. You know, I grew up around bourbon, so people certainly knew what that was, and, you know, there was a lot of a uh, lot of folks in the horsing business, horse, uh, the horse industry, but, you know, um, working as a sommelier was virtually an unknown thing, even at fine dining establishments in uh, Lexington, Kentucky, where I grew up. When did you start formally studying wine? And I, I, I now I'm having a really fun connection because I remember seeing an Instagram post of yours kind of recently, like in January, and you were studying in a Starbucks. You were drawing maps while studying wine. And I, uh -huh. and I think it said like exam coming up. So Obviously, formal wine training has been a part of your career, but when did that start? Yeah, so I think it started just a few years after I picked up my first book. Uh, like I said, you know, back in the day, you know, everything had to be independent. Uh, you had to take on an independent study and build your own syllabus and really uh, have, have that discipline kind of stick with, you know, whatever you were trying to learn. Um, but picked up my first book. One book led to many other books. Um, I, I think about three or four years after that, uh, that's when I started uh, working in the uh, restaurant. That's when I started going through the levels of the court uh, back in uh, 2007, 2008, I think it is. So I passed my level one uh, in 2009. Uh, that's when I was, so 07 and 08 was really the time frame when I started studying uh, for an examination. Uh, really started building a formal process uh, and, a, and a syllabus uh, to do that. And really, uh, you know, just writing down goals and, you know, a timeline to when to achieve them. Um, so uh, I, I want to take my first exam in 09. I didn't know what I was getting into, but I, you know, I did it and I, you know, passed and everything uh, just kind of built up from there. Uh, passed certified in 2010. Uh, and the advanced in 2011. That's pretty admirable because those exams are no joke. What are some other study tips? Like I see you drawing maps, but is that really helpful when you are getting into new regions? Absolutely. Uh, geography is a third of the battle, or if not a good half of it, I think. Um, you can't begin to understand wine and why uh, the liquid in the bottle tastes like the way it does 
uh, if you don't know the context and where it's from. You know, especially if you talk about wine uh, being an um, expression of place, well, you have to understand that place, and that's geography. Uh, it's regions, it's subregions, uh, and why they're delimited the way they are, you know, and how that influences the style of wine as you move from one region to another or one subregion to another. Same great variety, but it clearly tastes different. And uh, the only way to uh, appreciate and fully understand that, fully grasp that, is if you understand why those borders are drawn the way they are. And that's why maps are so important to me. And then how do you bring that detail of education into your current role? Are you more training your staff and working with other wine professionals at this point? Um, yes. Um, as far as my interaction, you know, with the staff on a daily basis, yes, I try to uh, instill uh, the importance of wine education as being the foundation um, to, to, to them being able to sell wine. Uh, now, I'm not, you know... Uh, uh, I'm not one of those that constantly drill wine information into people. You know, they learn as much as they want to, and I stop uh, there. You know, if, if I feel like they've had enough, I try not to overwhelm them because this is an infinite uh, amount of information uh, that, you know, uh, a person can be held accountable for knowing. Um, so I try not to, you know, wine is supposed to be about fun, right? And if they're going to have fun with their guests, then, you know, my job, you know, is not to overwhelm them. Uh, but I am there uh, to help them with whatever questions that I could possibly help answer. And as far as my interaction with the members go, uh, I try not to bring uh, to light, you know, certifications or exams or anything like that. A lot of them are aware of it simply because uh, the movie Son and all the documentaries have given so much attention to the industry, and I'm grateful for that. Uh, and they ask me questions accordingly uh, because they're curious as to what that process uh, involves and what that's all about. But, you know, for a great majority of the members, they're just there to have fun. They're, they just want to be taken care of, and they just want you to bring them a good class of wine, and that's what I'm there to do. And I'll even tell a fun story, you know, <laughs> if the occasion calls for it. That's perfect. But that's that's such a great reminder that even in fine dining, even in the settings that you work in, that wine is still supposed to be fun at the core of it. And you can bring kind of that background knowledge as the foundation of why you might be talking about a certain wine or why a wine is even on your list to begin with, which is really interesting uh -huh. to me. What, what types of wines are you working with in your portfolio right now? All kinds. Um... I mean, it's a, it's, it's a, it's a huge list. Um, I, I was a little overwhelmed when I first joined uh, the club. Uh, and, you know, uh, it, was, uh, it was inspiring uh, to know that, you know, the Psalms before me, they've built up on, you know, what I had just inherited uh, at the club. Uh, we have 1,300 SKUs, 22,000 bottles across the club. We have a long-term storage area where, you know, um, none of those wines are on the list and they're just kind of waiting there uh, for future posterity. And, uh, you know, 10 years later, God permitting, if I'm uh, still at the club, I'll go ahead and, you know, uh, the purchasing decisions that I make today, I'll go ahead and open a bottle, see how it's holding up, if it's ready to be put on the list. So it's kind of a, a legacy thing, um, I think, you know, for me. Uh, and then, of course, there, there are the numerous amount of SKUs that are all currently on the list now. Uh, and that's, uh, that's just, just from all around the globe. And I'm trying to diversify that uh, even further uh, to, to, you know, represent uh, the former Eastern Bloc, uh, Georgia, Moldova, Croatia, Slovenia, um, not to get too obscure, uh, but just to keep it fun and diverse and, uh, and the list of fresh. And just, just to, you know, introduce something new to our members as well, which they always appreciate. That's an incredible amount of wine that you're working with. That's really exciting and probably super fun for people that in the professional world love studying and learning about wine yourself. Now you're around it. And it makes me think like 
I mean, I see some pictures on your Instagram of these, what I call unicorn wines in terms of vintages and producers and things like that. You're around that. You get to see that. What are some wines that you kind of have held and you're kind of like, I can't believe I'm holding this wine right now. Do you ever have those moments? Yeah, I do. I, I So during the uh, club closure, you know, it's been a lonely three months uh, and I've had plenty of time to myself to you know, see what's down in the cellar. And, and I can tell you that the wine cellar at the Cherokee Town and Country Club is spotless. <laughs> um, but, uh, you know, every now and then as you're lifting boxes and you're organizing inventory, uh, you run into stuff, uh, some of which I could have sworn were completely dead. You know, when you think of gems and unicorn wines, you know, I don't believe they necessarily have to be the Lafitte's or even the DRC's. Uh, I mean, it's always fun to find vintages of the old vintages of those, which I have done. There are old vintages of, you know, all kinds of great DRCs down there. And it's always fun to, you know, trip, trip over stuff like that, if you will, for a lack of better words. Um, but, you know, I recently found a uh, 10-year-old Godeo uh, from Spain. And I was like, that is certainly dead. You know, we're giving this to the chef, you know, to cook with. And, uh, you know, we just opened one for the heck of it. And my gosh, it was great. It was unbelievable. It was vibrant. It was full of citrus. Uh, it had a little waxy note to it. It was super complex, right? Uh, it was very zippy. And I'm like, wow, we are saving this. Uh, and it's currently, it's not on the list. You know, I'd be interested in revisiting this maybe three to five years from now, see how it's holding up. But something tells me it's just not going to die and it's just going to live forever, or at least I hope. And uh, same thing with, uh, um, I found, you know, 10, 15 year old Mentheas uh, from Spain, from Bierzo. You know, thankfully, um, someone didn't uh, necessarily pay attention to the FIFO method and somehow these bottles got uh, stuck uh, behind in one of our, um, uh, shelves, one of our bins. So, um, and we just kind of unearthed these old dusty bottles uh, that were kind of hiding, you know, uh, all the way in the back corner of one of these bins that were concealed. And, and yeah, so it's things like that, that, that we find, we find them on, you know, it seems like every week when we uh, go down there, we're like, oh my gosh, we didn't know this was down here. So uh, it, it, that, that's been, that's been the most fun. You have like a treasure chest that you get to play with. It sounds like, I mean, well, this no, is we incredible. Have found a lot of duds too. So. <laughs> That's probably to be expected. I mean, not everything ages gracefully and I totally understand right. that, but those moments where you open a bottle and your palate is telling you that you are shocked that it is the way it is and it kind of breaks your expectation. That's yeah. gotta be super fun. But more oftentimes than not, it's surprised all of us. And um, yeah, it's, it's been a lot of fun. That is really, really cool. So you have a vast array of wine that you get to work with and choose from. So how do you help the members and people that come in discover new wines? Is it through food pairing suggestions or just having conversations table side? What's your, what's your best way of helping people explore? Yeah, so a lot of our members are uh, cognizant about pairing, um, you know, what they drink with the food that they're going to order. So, you know, um, roughly about a third of the time when I approach a table, uh, they, they do want to wait until they've made their decision as to what they're getting for their main entree. Um, so it's, um, you know, it, it's very sophisticated, you know, and I find that very classy, you know, that, and then they're like, well, we'll consult your advice, you know, once we've chosen our dish, you know, the first thing that they want to do when guests first sit uh, is they want to catch up with uh, their family members, their business associates, uh, they want to have a little cocktail, and they want to ponder about these things, you know, it's not a, it's, you know, for our members, it's not a, a quick decision most of the time, which I really appreciate, because there's something very classy about that. Um, 
but that also gives buys me a little time to think about what to sell them as well uh, and you know bring up a couple different suggestions with not only uh, price points but uh, styles of wine so if a member is used to drinking all California Pinot Noir, I might inch him toward a more modern uh, style, you know, as you average Amber 10 or something along those lines. You know, we do have a good old world representation uh, at the club on the wine list, even though, you know, statistically, I, you know, I feel like, you know, I sell more new world wine at the club. So I'm just kind of trying to swing the pendulum back a little bit toward and put the focus back on uh, old world producers or give them a fair representation of it. And that comes from your background knowledge of what not only you have in your inventory, but also what you've tasted and what you want people to try with the different food. I can imagine it's like a database in your head constantly while well, you're having these conversations. Well, it's a, and it's really the reason why I think, you know, people like us have jobs, right? You know, we're, the wine market is flooded with all sorts of different wines. I mean, we live in a great day and age right now. You know, we have so much available to us in terms of, uh, the sheer amount of wine that's out there and, and available. But uh, we also know that, you know, when we go to uh, grocery store shelves, it's dominated by one type of wine or very few types of wine. And people don't really get the breadth of the sheer diversity of the wines that are out there in the world. Well, I think that's where, you know, I come in. I I'm certainly going to sell you, you know, what you want to drink. I'm not going to say no. Um, but I'll also, you know, once we've established that relationship and trust, I'm going to be like, hey, you know, I think you're really going to enjoy this. Um, you know, it's a little bit of a departure from what you're used to. It's got a little nice touch of earth. You know, I, I think you'd enjoy this a lot. What is your favorite region to kind of help people explore on a deeper level? Like when you talk about that just left of center, what do you like to suggest to people? Um, as far as domestic, you know, I try to put the focus on, um, you know, Virginia, New York. My heart just skipped a beat. F uh, former <laughs> Virginia winery manager over here, just oh, mentioned. Oh, Kelly. Um, <laughs> well, that's awesome. Yeah, uh, definitely, uh, you know, I, I'm trying to create a presence, you know, with, um, you know, domestic wines, uh, small, uh, small to medium-sized producers of domestic wine, uh, especially in the uh, light of looming tariffs. Um, you know, from wines uh, from, from uh, the European Union, uh, I really think, you know, one of the trends that I foresee happening is a focus and attention back to American wine, uh, small to medium-sized producers. Uh, and I think uh, New York, Virginia, uh, Texas, and even here in Georgia, uh, they all deserve their fair uh, rep representation, especially, you know, if you're into uh, supporting the local market, which I'm into doing. So beautiful that you mentioned that, because I have seen that happening. It's I mean, actually, today I have to go in and submit another comment on the on the trade website because the tariffs are looming, and that yeah. is something that I'm sure the industry is just like on edge, waiting to see what what the ripple effect would be, has been, all of that right now. That's probably top of mind for all professionals. Yeah. But I like the idea of helping people discover what's local. I have seen that. I love that you mentioned Virginia. Shout out there. That's fantastic. But what do you want people to know about the clientele or the market in Atlanta and Georgia and I guess the Southeast in general that people might not know unless they come here and see what's oh. happening in wine. Yeah, no, I, I love Atlanta. Um, it's, um, it's super sophisticated, um, more so than I think, you know, our brethren in New York or even California might think. We are one of the major wine markets in the United States and we do consume a lot of wine uh, here in Atlanta. Um, and Thankfully, uh, you know, fortunately for us, we do, we see a lot of wine labels come through as well. 
It's not like we're limited in our choices. Uh, I'm constantly seeing uh, new and obscure producers every day. But I think it's a, a super sophisticated market. I don't know that we're up and coming anymore. I think in certain aspects we might be, but I think we're, you know, uh, every bit as um, um, diverse uh, in our offerings. And, um, uh, you know, I hate to use the word sophisticated because that, you know, just makes us sound uh, so ex exclusive. But, um, you know, I, I, I think what I'm trying to say is we're on par uh, with New York and uh, California and some of these other uh, bigger markets, if you will. I would agree with you there. I think that some other folks on the podcast have mentioned the Atlanta market as just underestimated. And until you're here and seeing the caliber of not only the wine programs, but the wine professionals that are working within them and the, the knowledge of the clientele is pretty impressive. And I think it's only it going to get more as, as more opportunities arise with wine education and programs like yours. And people like you that help people learn about new wines. Yeah, and uh, you know, we deal with a, a very sophisticated membership uh, at the Country Club. They're well-dined, very well-traveled people. You know, a lot of these uh, individuals have traveled to regions that I've only read about. And, and they talk to the locals, they've tried the food, uh, they've driven around, you know, in these towns and villages. Uh, and I can only imagine that, you know. So from that perspective, yes, I mean, we, we are dealing with a very high level of sophistication and knowledge um, nowadays. Yeah, so all the more important for Psalms to hold themselves accountable, I think, for knowing, knowing more. Which is exciting. That means that you can dive deeper into that rabbit hole that is the world of wine, which is pretty great. And uh, especially now, it's like a, to me, it's this connection to the places, to the people, to the history. You mentioned travel. That's such a big aspect of appreciating where the wine is from. But the community here is key. And I love that you mentioned that, you know, Atlanta's exciting place to be for wine. And I believe that your role allows you to also act as a mentor to your staff and having that, you know, new psalms enter the industry. So what is that experience like for you to be passing forward some of the training or the knowledge that you've gained as you've kind of moved through the past couple of years? It's a very rewarding thing. Um, Cause, uh, and going back to, you know, when I first started, I didn't have mentors. Uh, <laughs> there, there weren't very many people um, to, to kind of look up to and, uh, you know, seek guidance uh, from, but it's, uh, it's, it's so rewarding uh, for me to, it's humbling, first of all, to, to, to know that I, I, ha I get to, I have the opportunity of, you know, actually um, helping another person, sharing uh, my knowledge, knowledge, if you if you will, to better the the, the person who's uh, starting out in the industry and trying to get their foot in the door. Um, you know, as long as they're passionate, uh, I think I think that's really key. Um, I think passion and, and and the love of people are the uh, basic prerequisites to being a, a sommelier. You know, I'm not I'm not really concerned about knowledge. I think as long as you're passionate, the knowledge is a byproduct, and it will come. Uh, but if you don't have that uh, natural tendency for uh, hospitality, if you don't love people, uh, then I, I just don't think, um, you know, I just don't think you can be a good psalm. I know that sounds harsh, but I mean, I, I just feel that way. That, that's really the prerequisite uh, that I personally look for, you know, uh, when, I, when I look for um, not only hiring of psalms, but mentoring of psalms as well. It's very difficult to uh, help people who, um, who don't love people. Because we work in the context of people and hospitality. All the time. And I think that's such a great reminder, June, of 
how wine you can you can go out and you can look on the internet you can get lots of wine knowledge you can pick up wine books but when it comes to communicating with a guest with a customer whatever your wine setting is it does come down to hospitality at the end and providing that experience that people remember what they drank where they were and you can be a part of creating those moments for them and that's got to be super super rewarding but also takes a special type of person who wants to enter the wine world and be in that role well i can tell you this i mean you know if you're entering the wine world seeking attention uh, fame you're you know um I, you're just not going to make it <laughs> no you will not there is no way that you can work the shifts on your feet and working in a fast-paced restaurant setting and feel like you're not going to have a hard time at some point. And that, what is the hardest part of your day-to-day -day role? What would you say? Well, first of all, I, I think the hardest part of what I do is to commute um, there because you... <laughs> Welcome to Atlanta. <laughs> uh, well, yeah, uh, not only that, but you know, I feel like all the uh, wine jobs are within the uh, perimeter. So, you know, and I live out in the suburbs, but that's, that's, that's my fault. <laughs> um, no, I, I, commute is definitely a challenge. <laughs> it takes like an hour to get there, you know. <laughs> so traffic. on your way to on your way to work, are you thinking about wine, or what do you use in that commute time? I know a lot of people do commutes in Atlanta very differently. Some people want to just blank out. Some people use it for study time. What do you do? No, and I used to do that um, back in the day. You know, I used to put pop and CDs and you know CD books uh, recordings. Uh, if that tells you how old I am, yes, I still use CDs. Um, a lot of people think they're just like, oh, I just play it on my iPhone and Bluetooth and into my car. And I'm like, oh, how do you do that? Uh, <laughs> Got the CD right here. <laughs> uh, nowadays, uh, I just, no, I just listen to music. I mean, I, I try to give my brain a rest. Um, I, I'm still in the learning, uh, you know, but there's a time and a place for that, uh, I think. And I can focus best, you know, when I'm at a coffee shop, which, you know, I can't do anymore because they're all closed. But, um, but if I'm at home, you know, um, have a little bit of music playing in the background. Uh, just the right amount of distraction uh, at home goes a long way for me. And that's really the sort of environment that I prefer to learn in. So. It's really neat that you have this background in coffee. I didn't know that about you. And actually, <laughs> I would say I, as I'm sipping my coffee right now, um, my first like experience with like craft beverages was coffee as well. But I was like nine and my dad was giving me espresso. So I don't know. I mean, <laughs> I don't know how well that went. But I, I did spend most of my time really interested in coffee before I switched to wine. And uh -huh. now I, I tend to, a lot of the classes I teach, I ask people about other types of beverages they drink. And you mentioned scotch in your background and other types of liquors and things like that. I went to a scotch tasting and I was blown away by that too. So people that enjoy exploring their palate, has any of the knowledge in coffee transferred to the way you talk or drink wine? Is there any relation to the types and styles that you gravitate toward in both beverages? There is. Um, I, you know, coffee, uh, or at least a little bit uh, of what I've retained of it, information-wise, you know, from my days at Starbucks, is that uh, coffee does seem to express a sense of terroir, uh, like grapes do. Uh, it is a produce, after all, and it is, you know, you've heard of single-origin coffees, and a lot of coffees are labeled according to where they're from. Kona coffee, Columbia coffee, you know, however you want to get into it. Uh, and they all do taste different. So in that sense, yes, I have to say, you know, they're just like wine in the sense that uh, they express terroir and they are different. Um, they all have protected appellations of origin. Uh, but I think coffee is a, um, uh, a little more about intervention, uh, a little more about, you know, technique, 
than wine is. I think wine is a little more translatable, a little more transparent in terms of how it gets from produce to liquid. Um, coffee, there's a little bit more of a technical process that goes into why a coffee tastes like the way it does. Oh, that's a really good point. Well, that is a delineation there of the expression of the actual fruit at the core of it. And I find that really interesting too. And then you keep mentioning place. And I know that for me, when I go to a place that is producing wine, I exponentially learn more about why the wine tastes the way it does. So when it comes to wine travel, have you been able to go to some of the producers that you serve or how does travel work into your wine education? Uh, I wish more of it happened. Um, and I was supposed to travel several times this year until coronavirus happens. Obviously that's not going on uh, anytime soon. Um, and uh, you know, I'm, I'm not sure if EU still got their you know, ban on uh, travel from Americans or not. So um, yeah, so I don't have any, anything planned, but yeah, no, like you said, travel is key. Uh, there's nothing like actually going there, interacting with the locals, tasting their food, uh, learning about the history and how all that ties into why the beverage once again tastes like the way it does. So what's on your list for places you want to go as soon as it's safe to do so? Um, Montenegro, Croatia, <laughs> um, Slovenia. Uh, I really want to travel the uh, former Eastern Bloc. Um, but I've always wanted to go to Bordeaux, never been there. And I'm, a, I'm very passionate about Bordeaux. It was the first thing that I got into, you know, if you want to talk about specific regions uh, in wine. Um, and, um, you know, I've always wanted to uh, go to Bordeaux. Uh, it was my first love in wine. I'm starting to learn a lot more about Bordeaux. And so I feel like I need to go to the place and I'm starting to really study a lot of different wines that come from there. And it's just completely different, but completely fascinating in the same way. Yeah, it's just so rich in history. There's no end to what, to what you can know about it. And, um, you know, as, as familiar as people are, as one, you know, it's one of the more prevalent regions in the wine world, Bordeaux, Burgundy, there's just so much to know about it. And it's, uh, it's very humbling. Frankly, they make a lot more wine than we realize, not just the 61 Grand Cru's. <laughs> so there's a lot to unpack there when you when you want to go start exploring. And I do think that the people aspect is so fascinating. My husband is a history major in college and he constantly is looking up kind of how land and how properties were allocated and that is a rabbit hole. If you ever need to go onto a new, you know, new spoke of the wine world, it's pretty fascinating and France has that, you know, the history aspect is constantly drawing people in. Well, I'm sure it's a topic, you know, all in and of itself. Uh, there's just so much to know because it just branches into so many disciplines. Um, it's, um, you know, it, it's definitely a humbling topic. I still Absolutely. don't understand it. And humbling is probably something that we'd want to be part of a craft. You know, you don't want to feel like you've, you're at the end of the line of anything. It is something that constantly brings you in. So what's the advice that you would give to someone who is just maybe not even trying to work in wine, but has never explored wine in a more academic or more hobby type of way. What's, what's advice to someone who just wants to get started in learning more about wine? Yeah, no, just pick up a book and grab a glass. Uh, it's that simple. That's um, what you did, so, you know. <laughs> yeah, um, that's, that's just what you do. Um, well, first of all, you know, um, start out basically. Uh, keep it simple. Just uh, work on the outer edges of the puzzle. And the more you want to get into it, work on the inner pieces, you know, just fill in the details as you go. 
just get a general understanding of the wine. Um, just grab a glass and relax. Uh, you may not understand everything about the liquid that's inside that glass, but you know, you don't have to. I, I think what I want people to see is that if, especially if you're going through the examination levels, uh, I don't, I don't want them to get the impression that there is a fast route to the uh, red pen. The first impression that I want to give someone starting out is that this is a lifelong journey. So be humble, take it one step at a time, um, read a book, just grab a glass, have fun. That's probably the best advice. I think anyone interested in wine will want to hear. I, you, anybody can enjoy that glass of wine in whatever aspect that is. So absolutely. Thank you for encouraging people to enjoy wine, whatever that may mean. What is the, the future of the SOM profession looking like as we go into the next couple of months? That's a, that's a good question. It's, it's definitely um, everything is just moving on to a digital realm now, right? Uh, I've even done virtual uh, classes and tastings, you know, at the club for our members back when we were closed and no one could enter the club. Um, I see it going more on a digital platform. Uh, everything's going to be online. We're going to continue to socially distance. We're going to continue to wear masks um, for a very long time. And that's obviously going to affect uh, the way people do events. That's going to uh, affect the way uh, we do service. Uh, therefore, first of all, not, not as many events are going to go on. Not as many tastings are going to go on. Uh, so we're really going to have to come up with some creative ways and really use technology uh, to our advantage uh, to get through this. So I see, um, you know, a lot of Psalms are already going uh, virtually to get their message out, getting the bottles into the hands of, you know, their guests, uh, their customers, and in my case, the members. Uh, and we're trying to connect with them in any way, shape, or form uh, possible via the internet. Really think that's the new abnormal, uh, or that's what it's going to look like at least uh, in the next couple months. Probably is it member only at the club, but what are some other ways that people could connect to you if they have questions about wine education opportunities or wine tastings in Atlanta? What's the best way? Yeah, I mean, I'm on uh, Instagram. Um, I'm not a big social media guy. You know, I don't have Facebook. Instagram is something that I just started to kind of uh, catalog, you know, my daily experiences in hospitality and the wines that I uh, just kind of want to share with people and get their impressions and connect with other Psalms around the world um, and uh, hopefully be able to meet some new friends. Um, they can certainly connect with me uh, on that level. The club is member only, but, you know, I do intend on doing service practices and, you know, blind tastings with uh, fellow members of the community there. So, yeah, I mean, they'd like to uh, join us uh, whenever we do it after it's safe they're certainly welcome to do that and uh, reach out to me via DM. That's perfect. I'll make sure that all your information is there. Not only are you still providing service, but you're also providing safety and you're, you're doing everything you possibly can in this context. And I appreciate you for that. Oh, you're very kind. Thank you. Uh, great questions. Thank you for doing what you do. And thanks for your time today. We will drink together sometime soon. I appreciate it, Kelly. Take care. <laughs> this was fun. All right. Bye. Thanks for tuning in to the A Cork in the Road podcast, coming to you live from Atlanta, Georgia, and interviewing people who are changing the wine world in the Southeast and beyond. You can find more about A Cork in the Road at, at A Cork in the Road on Instagram, and make sure to check us out on www.acorkintheroad.com. See you soon, guys. Cheers.